0: Hi, it's Laura from Factor Fiction here with another Fiblet. In honor of Valentine's Day, I thought I'd post a couple of stories of love. Remember, three actually appeared in newspapers, but one is my own invention. After I share the articles, I'll read an advertisement from a contemporary newspaper while you consider which article is a fiction. Then I'll let you know if you made the correct choice. Listen closely because it's not easy to know if what you hear is fact or fiction. Ready to play? Love that intro. Thank you so much, Tracy, for playing that. Now, let's play fact or fiction, the Fiblet Edition. Choice number one, girls form an elopement club from the Streeter Free Press, 8th of January, 1897. The marriage of A.R. Wilhelm to Miss Jennings, which followed an elopement to Milwaukee, has brought to light an elopement club in Hyde Park, where girls of the high school are said to be members. Miss Jennings' elopement, fast following others in Hyde Park, has given widespread belief in the existence of an elopement club, and incredible as it may seem, it is said a cardinal principle of the club is that the older the man induced to elope, the more credit will be accorded the girl who wins him. The club is so much a reality that its written constitution has been discovered, and the salient features of it are as follows. This organization shall be called the HPHS Elopement Club. Absolute secrecy as to time and particulars of elopement shall be maintained, even between members. Membership shall be limited to seven, and shall cease the moment the wedding ring is placed on a true sister's finger. The older the man inveigled into eloping, the more credit shall be given the departing sister. Boys under 18 years are not to be considered responsible." Milwaukee is the Gretna Green preferable. Trunks and trousseau absolutely forbidden. Long wedding trips are also barred. The penalty for being a member for longer than two years is expulsion. Each departing member shall suggest a sister to take her place. First, last, and always, the motto of the club shall be, Elope, elope, we care not where. Just so, we find a husband there. Choice number two. Happily Ever Afters for All from the Chicago Tribune, the 25th of July, 1882. The sensation caused by the secret elopement of Elias Burnham to his lady love, the former Miss Jemima Ryerson, has had an unintended influence on some servants employed by the newlyweds. As readers will recall, the recently wedded couple are the children of celebrated architect Daniel H. Burnham and lumber magnate William Ryerson, respectively. Although the pair might have been considered a good match in the minds of many, Ryerson, known to be exceedingly protective of his pretty daughter, had forbidden the union at least until young Elias completed his studies. As is the way with modern love, parental disapproval appeared to be more of an attraction than a deterrent for the pair. Readers will remember the story of their elopement appeared in this paper less than one month ago. As of this printing, Mr. Ryerson has apparently given up his antagonism toward his new son-in-law and has embraced the union by gifting the newlyweds with a home near the campus of Rush Medical College where Burnham is completing his education. All seemed well in the new marital home until last night when an alarm was rung upon the discovery that two of the household staff had run away during the night. Their disappearance flung everyone into a panic. Apparently, in imitation of their employer's antics, housemaid Eliza Jones and coach driver Harold Johnston absconded in the night, leaving behind a notice that the two were off to Milwaukee to be married there. Not much is known about the former Miss Jones, but it is hoped that her marriage to her coachman Romeo will provide her with the same measure of happiness her mistress now enjoys. Choice number three. Stage elopement becomes reality. From the Interocean, the 14th of June, 1902. A stage courtship ending in an elopement that reads like pages from a playbook, but which, for all its dramatic features, took place in real life, and not before the footlights. This has been the experience of Barney J. Myers, manager and leading man of the Lyric Amusement Company, and Ella Miller, his leading woman. They left Waukegan for Chicago, married last evening. A wreck of the streetcar in which they were speeding from Chicago to Waukegan, a storm that further delayed their progress, an arrival at the Gretna Green of their seeking, only to find that the county clerk who was to issue the marriage license and the justice who was to perform the ceremony had left their offices. A search for these officials and success at last in being united were some of the incidents of the elopement, and served to remind the elopers that though they were stage folk, they were subject to the worries of everyday life. Although Myers is only 23 years old, he has been successful for the past several years in the management of road theatrical companies, in which he has generally assumed the position of leading man. The Lyric Amusement Company is the latest aggregation of budding actors and actresses he has gathered together for country consumption, as he put it. Of course, the erstwhile Miss Miller is a member of the company. Ever since rehearsals began several weeks ago, she has, in the estimation of Myers, been the principal part of the show— Although she was only 18 years old and comparatively inexperienced, Myers has been wont to say her interpretation of the role of the heroine in The Culprit, the play now on hand, reminds him of Nethersoul. In The Culprits, the leading man and the leading woman plan an elopement. Mr. Myers and Miss Miller planned this elopement so many times at rehearsals that it took a firm hold upon them, the more so because Myers told his father, S.H. Myers of 731 Walnut Street, that he was thinking of marrying Miss Miller, and Myers Sr. flew into a rage and told him to forget it. In the second act of the culprits, the leading man and the leading woman carry out their plans for the elopement. They do this by fleeing from their home of the heroine in the dead of the night in a stagecoach. After Mr. Myers and Miss Miller had decided to transpose this elopement from the stage to real life, they began to look about for something to take the part of the stagecoach. Miss Miller suggested a caret, but finally decided on a streetcar. Thursday afternoon, the couple boarded an electric car for Waukegan. The idea of eloping in the dead of night, as they had been accustomed to do at rehearsals, had been given up because, in that case, they would surely find the marriage clerk had left his office when they got there. Myers did not tell his father he intended to be married. When the car reached Highland Park, it struck an obstruction on the track and was derailed. The passengers alighted and assisted the motor man and conductor in getting it on the track again. Myers worked harder than any of the others. He was afraid that they would arrive in Waukegan too late to be married. Notwithstanding his endeavors, the couple had lost almost an hour by the time the car was again started. A few minutes later, when the car had left Highland Park, a violent storm arose, and it was deemed dangerous to proceed further until it was over. It was another hour before the car again started, and the couple did not arrive in Waukegan until long after the county clerk's office there had closed, and the clerk had departed for home. A messenger was dispatched for him, and when he finally arrived and consented to issue the license, the couple discovered that every justice court in the place had likewise long been closed. A second messenger was dispatched for Justice Weiss, who lived some distance from the courthouse. Hours passed and the couple had despaired of being married that day when Justice Weiss arrived and performed the ceremony. The couple left Waukegan for Chicago last evening. The father of the groom, when seen last evening, said he had not been informed of his son's marriage. He said he knew his son had been very attentive of late to Miss Miller and admitted that he had opposed the match. Choice number four, Ida Bell was a smart girl. From the Chicago Tribune, the 15th of June, 1888. The present epidemic of elopements, which is raging throughout the West, recalls the sensational elopement of Miss Ida Bell Pavey and Will Oates, two young people of highly respectable connection at Dora in this county. Miss Ida, the daughter of Crate Pavey, a leading farmer, was quite handsome, and acknowledged Belle of the neighborhood. She was small of stature, had dark hair and eyes, and was as plump as a partridge and had just attained her 17th birthday. Her affections were sought by many of the young men in the vicinity, more especially by George Hawk, son of the village miller. He had been waiting upon the young beauty for several months and believed himself to be her favored suitor. The prospective alliance met with favor on the part of the parents of both, and the union was looked forward to almost impatiently. There were few who knew there was another youth of Dora named Will Oates who held the key to Ida's affections. Oates was the son of a farmer and 22 years old. He was regarded as just a little rapid in his habits and was an invalid when he conceived the violent fancy for Miss Pavey. He quietly but perseveringly insinuated himself into the confidence of the young lady, and hardly a day passed, but rose-tinted notes were exchanged through the medium of a mutual friend, a Miss Innyard. Few opportunities for meeting each other were enjoyed by the couple, as Pavey intensely hates Oates and forbade him the house. For six months, the young Lochinvar could no more than speak casually to his adored. One Sunday evening, Hawk took Miss Pavey to church. She and Oates, it seems, had arranged a plan to elope that night, and a tap on the window was to be the signal for her to leave the church and join him on the outside. When the services were about half over, the expected tap sounded on the pane, and clasping a handkerchief to her nose, she explained to Hawk that her nose was bleeding, and that she would be compelled to retire. She arose and slipped out of the sanctuary, declining his proffered escort. Oh, no, please stay here, and I will return presently. At the door, the fair girl met her lover, who had considerately provided a horse and buggy, and in a few moments, they were rapidly putting distance between them and their angry parents. At the close of the services in the church, Hawk hastened to the Pavey Mansion to ascertain the condition of Ida's nasal organ, when, to the consternation of himself and Mr. and Mrs. Pavey, it was found that Ida had not reached home at all. Everyone, without being able to tell why, jumped to the conclusion that she had eloped with Oates. Horses were ordered out in hot haste and hawk, and the pretty girl's brother mounted and rode like mad to Legro, reaching there in advance of the eloping couple. Telegrams were sent in all directions, and after hunting up two men named Bryant and Tiller, who were induced to go to North Manchester on the chase, the boys returned home. They had scarcely left Legro when Will and Ida drove through the town on the way to North Manchester. Shortly after midnight, Pavy and his son drove to the Oates domicile and savagely demanded to know where young Oates was. Receiving an unsatisfactory reply, he yelled, He has run off with my girl! I'm going to have my girl if I have to walk over your son's corpse! Will and Ida arrived at North Manchester early Monday morning and made straight for the depot, where they were accosted by Tiller and Bryant. Convinced that Oates was determined to marry the girl, the boys softened, and instead of opposing the departure of the pair, bade them godspeed as they climbed aboard the train for the Gretna Green of Hoosier lovers, Niles, Michigan. At that point, the marriage was solemnized by a Methodist minister, and that same evening, Mr. and Mrs. Oates returned to North Manchester. Tuesday morning, they went to the Oates' home, where they were warmly received. Subsequently, Mr. Pavey had an interview with his lovely but headstrong daughter and tried to induce her to leave her husband but she emphatically declined to consider any such proposition. Young Oates went to work with a will, built him a home and is getting along nicely. Though to this day, the young lady and her parents are estranged. So those are your four choices. Think about them. And while you consider each, I'm going to read you an advertisement that I found in a 1905 Owensboro, Kentucky newspaper. straight talks on patent medicines. The Rexall remedies deserve confidence. As all these remedies are grouped under one name, they must succeed or fail together. There must be no weak links in this chain. One unworthy remedy would mean disaster for the entire plan. If you, for example, purchased the Rexall cough cure and were not cured by it, how could we expect you to place any faith thereafter in the Rexall dyspepsia cure or any member of the Rexall family? You can understand, therefore, why such anxious care was given to finding and choosing the remedies to which the name Rexall was given. We have admitted none to this circle until our committee of experts had been convinced by investigation and test that it was the best remedy known to medical science for the ailment it aimed to relieve. Who should know better than the leading thousand druggists of this country? What are and what are not efficient medicines? Remember, the success of our enterprise depends on the merit of each individual remedy. Our reputation, which is our very business existence, is at stake. Can you doubt that in buying a Rexall remedy, you are buying the best that science and experience can give you? Here are three prominent members of the Rexall family. Rexall 93 Hair Tonic The famous Rexall 93 Hair Tonic is composed in chief of resorcin beta-naphthol, and pilocarpin. resorcin is one of the greatest and most effective germ killers discovered by science, and in connection with beta-naphthol, which is both germicidal and antiseptic, a combination is formed which not only destroys the germs which rob the hair of its nutrients, but creates a clean and healthy condition of the scalp, which prevents the lodgement and development of new germs. Pillocarpin is a well-known agent for restoring the hair to its natural color, where the loss of color has been due to a disease of the scalp. It is not a coloring matter or dye, it produces its effects by stimulating the scalp and hair follicles to health and active life. This combination of curatives mixed with alcohol as a stimulant perfects the most effective remedy for hair and scalp troubles known today, per bottle 50 cents. Rexall dyspepsia Tablets The remarkable success of Rexall dyspepsia tablets is largely due to the new and successful method of manufacture, whereby the well-known properties of bismuth subnitrate and pepsin have been combined with carminatives and other agents. Bismuth subnitrate and pepsin are recognized by the entire medical profession as specifics for acute indigestion or chronic dyspepsia. The pepsin used is manufactured under a new process, which develops its greatest efficiency. Pepsin not only supplies to the digestive machinery one of the most important elements of the digestion, fluid, but it seems to exert a tonic influence upon the glands, which supply all the other elements. The carminatives add properties which promptly relieve pains caused by undigested food. The combination of the whole makes a remedy absolutely invaluable to any man or woman. Suffering from dyspepsia, and not only a remedy, but a cure, which works by gradually rebuilding and stimulating the glands which perform the digestive functions. Package, 25 cents. Cherry juice cough syrup A new idea in cough syrups, this preparation owes its efficiency to the presence of wild cherry, vinegar squills, bone set, horehound, and syrup. All of these have been known for a hundred years as remedies for coughs and hoarseness. In Rexall cherry juice cough syrup, all of these remedies have been combined by a process of manufacture that has blended them into a perfect medicinal harmony whereby the characteristics of each support and reinforce the others. The pathological properties of each ingredient does its own particular work in easing the inflamed membranes, loosening the phlegm, and setting up a condition of health in the bronchial and nasal passages. One spoonful will relieve the inflamed membranes and temporarily stop the cough. One bottle will work a cure. It is exceedingly pleasant to taste. Children like it. Per bottle, 25 cents. Look for this Rexall guarantee on each package. This preparation is guaranteed to give satisfaction. If it does not, come back and get your money. It belongs to you, and we want you to have it. Smith & Bates Druggist, the Rexall store. Okay, everybody, so that was actually an ad for uh, Rexall Remedies that appeared on page 15 of the Owensboro, Kentucky's Messenger Inquiry on December 24th, 1905. So did everyone make their choice? Was it girls form an elopement club? Was it happy ever afters for all? Stage elopement becomes reality, or Ida Bell was a smart girl. Drum roll please. The story I invented was happy ever afters for all. I think I probably owe a debt to Downton Abbey for inspiring that one, but the characters in the story are my own invention. I hope you all enjoyed today's valentines theme stories. I'll be back next Monday with a full-length Fact or Fiction episode. And until then, listen carefully because it's not easy to know if what people say is fact or fiction. Goodbye.